Welcome to another podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. My name is Raj Pasord and I'm a consultant psychiatrist based at the Bethlehem Royal and Maudsley Hospitals in South London. Joining me today is Professor Joel Rosen, a clinical professor of psychiatry based at the uh, Departments of Psychiatry and Departments of Psychology at the University of Washington in Seattle in the USA. And he's published a very interesting editorial in the January edition of the British Journal of Psychiatry 2008 with some co-authors. And the title of the editorial is Problems with the Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder Diagnosis and Its Future in DSM-5. So first of all, Professor Rosen, can we um, ask you, what are these problems that you're referring to with the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder? There are several problems. Uh, one involves the question of uh, to what extent the, the, new, the relatively new diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder advances our understanding of how people react to adversity. Uh, when I say relatively new, it was in 1980 that the diagnosis was introduced uh, in the psychiatric uh, diagnostic systems. Uh, so uh, that is one very fundamental problem. Uh, and then there's a problem uh, associated with the model of post-traumatic stress disorder being used increasingly to explain a wider array of reactions to a wider range of situations. Uh, and so there's a concern that normal reactions to adverse events are increasingly becoming confused with diagnostic terms such as post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, let's talk in a little bit more detail in a moment about the problems, the specific problems that you refer to in your editorial over the diagnosis. But could you sketch out for someone who may not be familiar with it, what is meant to be meant by the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder? What are, what are the symptoms meant to be and how are clinicians meant to make this diagnosis? It may be good to uh, uh, first comment on before the diagnosis uh, of PTSD existed, uh, Professionals and uh, everyday human beings knew that uh, it's normal to have reactions to adverse events. By adverse events, life-threatening accidents, being a crime victim, uh, horrific catastrophes, uh, loss of life to loved ones, uh, people react to this. And we used to understand this as uh, depression. Sometimes people might develop anxiety problems or phobias. Uh, in 1980, the idea was introduced that a unique or distinct type of disorder might develop uh, from particular life-threatening events. And the kinds of reactions associated with this uh, new disorder involved what are called re-experiencing reactions, intrusive thoughts, nightmares, uh, also avoidance reactions, uh, keeping away from things that would remind you of the trauma, withdraw and lose interest in things that used to be important to them, and then what are called hyperarousal reactions, uh, easily startling, uh, being hypervigilant. And uh, so that, those, that cluster of reactions defined this new diagnosis. The difficulty is that we are realizing that these kinds of reactions can occur to a multitude of stressful events. They don't have to be life-threatening traumatic events. They can be very stressful events, losing a job, losing a career, 
losing a marriage. And in addition, these reactions can occur in the absence of these events. So there is a new view developing that uh, early attempts to define a distinct disorder associated with trauma may be flawed, and perhaps we should return to known processes such as depression and anxiety to talk about how people react to adversity. So let's take a look at the editorial. And one of the first things you mention in the editorial as being a problem is the question of specific etiology. You say that post-traumatic stress disorder is meant to have a specific etiology, and yet in practice it often doesn't. Could you say a bit more about what you're, what you're meaning by that argument? When we diagnose someone with uh, depression, the depression could be caused by a variety of uh, factors. There could be one stressor. There could be seven stressors. It could be there's a biological component, and the person has problems modulating mood independent of events. When PTSD is diagnosed, there is an assumption that the problems relate to a specific single incident, and that incident is defined as having to be a life-threatening stressor that a person experiences with a sense of helplessness and horror. As it turns out, as as I tried to explain earlier, people can have reactions to a full range of stressors. Uh, So there are reports of PTSD-like reactions after losing a job, the collapse of a marriage, and uh, in fact there's a publication on people developing Post, they say post-traumatic stress disorder, what they would mean is post-traumatic stress disorder-like reactions, uh, that farmers who lost cattle to foot and mouth disease developed post-traumatic uh, stress disorder. Uh, so there is the assumption that post-traumatic stress disorder results after a specific incident, Uh, But it turns out that, in fact, the symptoms can occur without an incident, and they can also occur without there having been a life-threatening traumatic event to the person. It's possible that you could be arguing that there is a thing called post-traumatic stress disorder, um, but maybe clinicians have been a little bit um, less than rigorous um, with the way they diagnose it. Or it could be that you're arguing in your editorial that there may not be such a thing as post-traumatic stress disorder. It could just be that this is a variant of something we should be referring to as a a, a kind of anxiety disorder or a kind of depression. Both of those are equally plausible possibilities uh, based on our current understanding. The difficulty is that post-traumatic stress disorder is now being used so broadly that if there is a true distinct disorder, uh, we're probably not going to learn too much more about it because we are blending uh, all sorts of events and all sorts of reactions under this diagnostic term. It may be that a tighter definition would help identify a distinct syndrome, uh, or it may be that, in fact, There is no distinct syndrome, uh, and as we learn more, we will 
appreciate that more. So getting back to your question, uh, I think both of those are uh, real possibilities that need to be considered. One of the um, most entertaining parts of your editorial was under the section entitled Criterion Creep, where you talk about the fact that so many different things seem to be falling under the rubric of post-traumatic stress disorder, and you refer to something called post-traumatic embitterment disorder. Um, Could you tell us a bit about that? The framework of post-traumatic stress disorder is increasingly being used as a narrative to discuss Uh, reactions that people have to adverse events. And as this model is expanded, it's being expanded to a range of emotions, including the feeling of embitterment. And uh, a psychiatrist has written articles uh, with colleagues and published a book entitled uh, Post-Traumatic Embitterment Disorder. Uh, My just speaking about this may lead to uh, uh, improved sales, for this book, uh, whether uh, for better or worse. Um, It's actually selling uh, better than many respected textbooks on post-traumatic stress disorder if one looks at different uh, search engines. So uh, there's a problem with this expansion. It's yet another example of a part of human emotion becoming medicalized under this PTSD model. Let's take as an example disgust as an emotion. There are many stimuli that lead to a strong sense of revulsion, a feeling of disgust. There's a scientific literature on the disgust reaction. And if a situation occurs in which we have a strong disgust reaction, we may experience many of the reactions that are associated with post-traumatic stress disorder. Intrusive thoughts about it, avoidance of things that remind us of it. Uh, And then we could start to ask, well, should we have a new disorder called post-traumatic disgust disorder? Uh, So one can see that if this model keeps getting extended, uh, it becomes very problematic. But there's something very interesting about the very popularity of post-traumatic stress disorder and the fact that it's only a relatively new diagnosis dates back to the beginning of the 1980s, and yet it's taken off so dramatically. And one theory that I have about why it's so popular is the fact that it's linking a emotional reaction to an external event. And that helps greatly with the the traditional stigma around mental illness. In other words, if you have post-traumatic stress disorder, something really bad happened to you, and that explains why you, you are now emotionally disturbed. And the thing was so bad that we understand why you're emotionally disturbed, because the, the badness of the emotional disturbance was in the bad thing that happened to you. So it's a way of escaping the stigma of mental illness. It's not about you, it's about the trauma that you experienced. Yes, a similar situation uh, is, uh, in, occurs in the concept of bereavement and grief. Uh, if, if someone is in a state of mourning because a loved one has died, there's certainly no uh, burden on that person. Everyone understands what's happening. Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder may have a similar benefit in that it pins the problem, uh, the reactions on the event, as you're pointing out. Um, The difficulty is that in bereavement, most people improve over time. Uh, Time heals the pain of losing a loved one. 
And it turns out that's also true after life-threatening events, which is that over time, reactions tend to subside. And so just like bereavement uh, with post-traumatic stress disorder, if people don't recover, it appears useful to be looking for what else may be contributing to the difficulties in coping. So that while on the surface, PTSD seems to have this uh, appeal of narrowing the analysis so far down to a single event that there are no other issues to consider, it, it turns out that's really not the case. I agree. And, and in fact, um, as you comment, I think, in your paper, there's a lot of research that indicates that really the event may be kind of by the by, that a lot of people experience really, really bad events and they emerge relatively unscathed. And what we're learning, I would argue, is that the people who end up with PTSD following a traumatic event weren't entirely normal, for want of a better word, before the event. There was a predisposition, a vulnerability. That's often true. There can be some events that so shatter how a person uh, views their world or views th their own self that uh, a previously uh, well-adjusted person has unique difficulties coping. Um, so I, I think we should hold out to that. But th there is an increased understanding, as is being pointed out, that most people cope successfully with uh, adversity. There's a very curious point to make here, which is post-traumatic stress disorder has been a very useful diagnosis. It has spurred a tremendous amount of research. We've learned much more about how people respond to adverse events. Ironically, the very literature spurred by this useful diagnosis has taught us that the diagnosis may not actually be as valid as was hoped. Can I ask how um, your views on, on PTSD influence your clinical practice? Does, does it change the way you might approach a patient who might be given this diagnosis? Does it alter your management of the patient or your treatment of the patient? I think my practice has changed in a, in a manner that's consistent with what we say in the editorial, which is that in my practice, and I would advise other clinicians to not reflexively conceptualize a patient's problems after a traumatic event as reflecting the single diagnosis post-traumatic stress disorder. Instead, take a broader view of what were the issues this person had coping before the traumatic event, how did the person interpret the event, what are their social supports, what's happening in the person's life after the event. And by taking a broad view of the person in a full context of what is, being, uh, what is happening in the person's life, uh, I think we as clinicians are at an advantage to understand the patient. The final bit of the title of your editorial refers to DSM-5. What are the implications for DSM-5? It depends on to what extent our points are accepted <laughs> so that if uh, one was happy with the construct uh, uh, as it's now functioning, one might leave things alone. If there's agreement that these problems uh, need attention, it suggests that 
the definition of PTSD should be altered in some way. To explain this in a broader context, PTSD was introduced in the, in the third edition of the DSM, which is a diagnostic manual of psychiatric disorders. Uh, currently, we have DSM-4, and DSM-5 is anticipated to be published in around 2011. Uh, if one takes the view that DS, uh, if one takes the view that PTSD needs to be redefined in DSM-5, there are several options. And one, which would be quite controversial, is to relegate the diagnosis to what is currently an appendix for experimental criterion sets. Uh, this would still help to encourage research, but would also help to reduce the extent to which the model is being expanded and human emotions are being medicalized as symptoms of PTSD. What a lot of people may not realize who may be listening um, in other parts of the world is that the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that you refer to, or the DSM, um, is quite important in, in the practice of American medicine because it's quite important in terms of reimbursement that, that one achieves a diagnosis that is recognizable in something like the DSM. Whereas elsewhere in the world with a different payment structure, um, the notion of, of you having to achieve a diagnosis that's in a book somewhere like the DSM isn't so important. So there's some quite profound financial implications, aren't there, for for whether something ends up in the DSM or it doesn't. Yes, and it's been pointed out that PTSD is a particularly attractive diagnosis uh, in societies such as the United States uh, because, as we talked about earlier, the diagnosis determines causality. So if one is depressed after a car accident, there may be many reasons for it. But if one is diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder after a car accident, that very diagnosis determines that the car accident was the cause. Um, so it, it is an interesting situation where a diagnosis is interacting with real-life considerations of how people get reimbursed. So is it not the case that, particularly in somewhere like America, there may be quite large financial vested interests in keeping something like PTSD uh, as a separate category in the DSM-5? On the one hand, I feel that I can say yes to that. On the other hand, I would not want that to detract from the, the very real clinical issues and uh, diagnostic issues that are at the heart of post-traumatic stress disorder and exist independent uh, of all these possible financial concerns. Uh, so I, I, I wouldn't want it to appear that financial concerns are at the heart of this and one really doesn't need to be looking at other issues. That's not the case. Yes, uh, there can be those types of financial considerations, but independent of that, there is the very real issue of how should we be thinking about people's reactions after adverse events, and may there be some 
utility to the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, independent of in whatever ways it may be interacting with insurance or disability claims. Professor Gerald Rosen, thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you.